Hi, I'm Batsheva Frankel from Overthrowing Education, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Dr. Judith Peck. She's a professor of art. She's an artist and a writer of fiction and nonfiction. Today we're focused on her latest novel. It's called Naked Under the Lights. Focused on a family, art, and the world that they interact with. Oh, what an awesome story. What an awesome talk. You're going to love this episode. Thanks for listening. And by the way, it would be so cool if you shared this with your friends, your family, your neighbors, your colleagues. Yeah, that would be so cool. All I got to do is say, hey... If you don't listen to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, the podcast, you should. And here's a link. Could you do that for me? That would be so awesome. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Hey, do you like awesome rings? Do you need a ring to replace one that you lost ages ago? Or do you need a new wedding band because yours is no longer fixable? Well, (laughs) I have this cool sponsor, Boone Titanium Rings. They can be found at boonrings.com. They make their rings from titanium, and you can get the rings carved, engraved, inlaid, laser cut. There's even special collections like the Hunter Series or the Gamer Rings or the Black Zirconium. Very cool. They have models that have meteorite, wood, or other inlays. Check out BoonRings.com. And at checkout, use the code for my podcast. It's capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, and the number 12. T-L-L-K-12, and you will get 10% off the total, and you will help this podcast out. Thanks so much. I love my ring, and I know you will love yours. It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests, and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, Dr. Judith Peck is Professor Emeritus of Art at Rampapo College of New Jersey. She is author of several fiction and nonfiction works and a sculptor with work in 80 collections, including the Yale Gallery of Art, the Ghetto Fighters Museum in Israel, libraries, universities, and cultural and religious institutions here and abroad. Dr. Peck holds a doctoral degree from New York University and two master's degrees from Columbia University. She is recipient of the 2020 Albert Nelson Marquis Lifetime Achievement Award and has completed the first draft of a fourth novel about an art therapist who helps solve a school shooting. Judith grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. She has four grown children and 12 grandchildren and resides in Mawad, New Jersey. Images and videos of her sculpture can be viewed at jpecsculpture.com, and descriptions of her books can be seen at iapbooks.com, and I'll have those in the show notes so you can link to them easily. Our focus today is on her novel, Naked Under the Lights, which was published by Black Rose Writing. The story is set in and around the iconic Art Students League in New York City, where 20th century stars of the art world studied and taught. Here, Bert Kossoff teaches painting when he is not cloistered in his studio. His wife, Ruth, defends her husband's distance and tolerates his infidelities for the sake of their daughter. Sonata, at age 18, lacking purpose of her own, is drawn to the mystique of her father in his world of artists and and models. In the struggle to find her way, Sonata encounters family secrets long concealed and later one that tears open their lives, exposing the lies that have misled them, even as they sustained them. As each member of the shattered family finds a path to move forward, art itself, the urgency to create, is revealed as a force of its own. The terrain is confounding where people searching for truth have learned to practice the art 
of Illusion. Judith, thanks for joining me today, and uh, it's great to have you on the show. Say hi to everyone. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here, and uh, let's start by talking about you as a sculptor. Where'd your interest come from? Well, actually, <laughs> my interest started when I was 10 years, my interest started a long time ago, but my mother's interest was when I was 10 years old, and I brought home a cat. And she said, that is a very nice cat. I'm sending it right to art school. And she shipped me off to the uh, Maryland Institute, where I went every Saturday morning. And that's where I went while the other kids were outside playing. But I enjoyed it. I loved it. And after that, in high school, I went three nights a week to um, study sculpture. And I guess that's when it started, my mother's initiative. That's very cool. Now, I've spent some time looking at your website and the different works that you got going, and you got a lot of a lot of neat um, from very very real feeling to uh, you know the um, to, to not so much, but it has some sort of meaning or whatever. And it's so cool to look at the, your different work and and one of the mediums that that you use quite a bit is uh, is bronze. Um, what's it like working with metal? Well, first of all, in bronze, it's casting. I work in wax first for the bronze, and then it goes to a foundry, and they cast it. And that's a whole lost wax process there. So I don't actually do the foundry work, and most people in bronze don't. And, uh, but when I weld uh, for the steel works, that is, uh, you know, done in fabrication yourself. But bronze is, uh, it has to be done at a foundry with very high heat, melting, you know, the metal. So. That- I'm sorry. That's that's so cool because that's what that's what I was thinking is that you got to get a whole process here. It's not like just like you know tapping or or uh, snipping or doing something with cloth or something like this. There's a huge process here. So I mean, it's I mean, it, I, I mean the it's a huge process, Stephen. And what I do is I uh, when I was teaching sculpture, uh, you know, I taught for 42 years at Ramapo College. Uh, I took my students to the foundry to let them see the actual melting in the furnace and the whole process. It's a very laborious process and also very expensive, as you can imagine, because there's a lot of hands involved and a lot of steps involved. Very much so. So the uh, I. So I got I got to ask this because you're talking about the wax figures and such. Could you have some that are lifelike or bigger than life uh, type uh, objects? Do you uh, do do you make them small first and then make them big, or how do you do that? Well, uh, no, I don't. In fact, some people do make models and maquettes and all that, but I sort of plunge right in. Right now, I'm doing these large figures that you talked about in fiberglass. I'm only five foot tall, you know, and. Uh, uh, but I can make huge figures because uh, fiberglass worked with resin, like epoxy resin, you know, uh, and then adding in bronze in powder form uh, and other kinds of uh, mixtures in it and paints. You can do all sorts of large things. So that's why I'm able to make, you know, make huge monumental things by working uh, with these materials. Uh, in terms of my bronzes, the ones that are indoors on pedestals, those are made in wax first, and then, uh, as I said, gone uh, to the foundry. But I don't make models first normally. Even when I was carving, I just plunged right in uh, to the wood or to the stone. It was just my modus operandi. That's so cool. Now, as a note, I, you know, there's a time in my life where I got a chance to learn how to use a cut, cutting torch, and we were making uh, cattle crossing guards type things for uh, these pieces of property. And I got to tell you, those that that iron would pop and stuff and you're wearing these big long gloves and uh i learned later that it was real important to wear that vet 
that uh, apron that they they wanted you to wear that it was you know you, 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 at first you didn't wear it because uh, that doesn't look cool man and after a while you got, gave up on the coolness <laughs> aspect uh, does Creative, very creative. (laughs) Does the metal and stuff like, I mean, do you, I mean, are you actually getting into using cutting torches and stuff? Like you mentioned iron. Well, with welding, it's a different, I'm not keen on welding. I made a whole series of ladies of steel in uh, their overlay sides in in, uh, um, steel. It's actually steel, not iron. Uh, But I'm not keen on it. It's too cold. I really like warmer things like working with wax, clay, uh, and as I say, even fiberglass and cloth, because fiberglass is a cloth until you have laminated it and it becomes solid and hard and lives forever, you know, with the resins. Uh, and so those are the kinds of materials I like to work with more so. Uh, but anyway, my ladies of steel might be going on the Dag Hammarskjöld Plaza next month, uh, which will be nice. That's in New York City. Uh, it's a gateway to the UN. Uh, so I'm looking forward to bringing those ladies there. Cool. Well, congratulations on that. That's awesome. Well, good luck with the the opening and uh, and uh, the presenting the presentation. That's that's cool. The, Thank uh, you. Mm-hmm. So I got to So let's uh, let's talk about this. I mean, we're, what we're going to talk about today is because I could I'll talk your out because it's cool learning about all the artwork that you're working on. But the uh, writing books is nothing new to you, nonfiction and fiction. I mean, what inspired you to write? your novel that we're going to be talking about today, which is called Naked Under the Lights. Yeah, you know, Stephen, I can actually segue from what you were just talking about, my sculpture, uh, to this, because storytelling is what I seem to love to do. And all my sculpture, not all of it, but most of it, does tell stories. I think my whole quest is to find the stories that are out there just by observation and do something with them, project them on so, so people can share it with me. I think that's it. So I'll go on to talk about what started with writing, but um, I do think your uh, observations about sculpture are very pertinent here as I think about my over the whole you know, body of my work. Um, well, uh, I think you asked what started me to write. Is that the question? Yes, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's because I made a discovery. I was teaching dance at the time. My first book, called Leap to the Sun, Learning Through Dynamic Play, was a result of the discoveries I made teaching children to dance. These were young children. Uh, And in the movement, I used a lot of imagination. I spurred their imagination uh, by uh, thinking about something and then evoking it with movement, actual movement. And I discovered in years of teaching dance that these young children were all eager to learn good at learning, expressive, creative, what was I onto? And it turned out that I was seeing three endowments of children, three things that they were born with that they had been using all their life to learn. One was physical energy. Look at the infant in the, in the, in the crib, moving their arms, their legs, their head, this way, that, looking at everything moving their physical endowments that they have, everything that they can be moved, everything that could be moved, did move. The other was imagination. They didn't, uh, as they grew older, they had lots of questions, a lot of curiosity, but they didn't know the answers. So they used their imagination. They felt the grass while they're sitting on a blanket in the, on the lawn and they, they wonder what it is. And they have to use their imagination for that. And the other thing is self-expression. 
Well, we all know that. They have to express themselves in one way or another. So all three of these, what I call endowments, are the aggravation of parents as well as uh, their admiration because they make a lot of noise and they uh, make a lot of mischief and uh, they sure do use a lot of energy. So um, uh, I had to write about it and that was my first book, Leap to the Sun, Learning Through a Dynamic Play and it was published by Prentice Hall. And a new uh, a book based on those same things except with, with a lot of research about how the body relates to uh, the brain is now out by Rutledge of Taylor and Francis, and that's called Dynamic Play and Creative Movement, Powering Body and Brain. So anyway, so it's gone a long way since that very first time way back in, uh, in the 70s when I started to write. That's awesome. That's really cool. And it just is, just to know, there's a whole part of my audience right now to be totally going, you are, can, can we do like a part two where you talk about the, the play? Because that's, you know, that's a big deal within uh, education right now is the idea that, uh, um, you know, the, the importance of play and uh, um, the physical nature as opposed to sitting there looking at a screen the whole, <laughs> the whole time and stuff like that. That's true. And it, it, it's a for obesity also, you know, uh, uh, getting off of your duff, so to speak. Right. And, uh, so it helps with the physical uh, aspect of obesity. But more than that, we're learning this whole field of psychology is changing because it's now it's neurology. It's all about the brain and how the brain functions. The brain, Stephen, is like your best friend. It's like having your mother with you all the time. All the brain wants to do is take care of you. Isn't that fascinating? It is. What yes. I want to do is make sure, and it does it by prediction. What you did before, it predicts what you want to do now. I mean, I think it's fascinating. That's awesome. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, so I'm going to use that to to segue into because uh, otherwise, I keep you looking at all all kinds of other cool stuff. We got. Uh, um, yeah, the beginning, let's, let's kind of start shifting towards your book. And in your bio, I read the following. The story is set in and around the iconic Art Students League in New York City, where 20th century stars of the art world studied and taught. So can you share a little about this, this league? Well, uh, I was fortunate enough to get a merit scholarship to the Art Students League when I was 19. And I was able to study every evening uh, for five days a week, you know, for an entire year. And um, so uh, I, this is the setting for, uh, for that novel. Uh, and it's, uh, it's actually a place where um, you, well, I, I don't know, you, you really work on your own and the teacher might come in, you know, and, and give you a look and say a few words and all that, but you're really working on your own. Uh, so uh, it, it's an iconic place because most of the stars of the 20th century I spent at least a little time at the Art Students League. So, and you got to work with those teachers, you know, uh, and you had to, you also sat in a life drawing class every day if you wanted to, free of charge. Once you're in a class, you can go there and work with the model. And there is the model, and that is the scene in my novel, Naked Under the Lights. The model sitting, standing on the stage or sitting on the stage, it's a little platform, it looks like a stage, and we are all surrounding her, all the students are surrounding her. Uh, or him, but mostly they're female, and they are exposing themselves, giving themselves, sharing themselves in their nudity under fluorescent lights. Uh, and this sparked my feeling for the novel, because we are exposing ourselves to the artists who are trying to 
bring her to life on the page in some fashion, or bringing their own sexuality to life, their own feeling of what nudity is, of what their their own selves are, shorn of clothing, shorn of all the accoutrements that we civilized people managed to pour onto ourselves. So that was fascinating to me, and that's really the nucleus of the novel, the exposure of each of us uh, under the lights. Gotcha. Very cool. The, uh, I can, I can, the, for some reason, it's just the word intimidation pops into your mind as you're sitting there with all these, and I'm talking about not from the model's ta- standpoint, I'm talking about from, you know, to, to actually start doing what you do well instead of paying attention to what the others are doing or something like that. It seemed like that would be something you'd have to get over with is, you know, just to do what you do as opposed to worrying about who's sitting next to you and what they're drawing. (laughs) Well, you know, you're you're talking about people looking at you. We all know that women feel people looking at them much more so than men do. Men can walk into a room and they're looking out. Children walk into a room and are looking out. Women walk into a room and they're feeling about how people are looking at them, what they're seeing and how they look. And usually they have to sort of pump themselves up to be able to feel like they're doing well in that exposure. So it's interesting. That is definitely more feminine than than masculine having that. But we all have the sense that we're being studied and judged, judged mostly. I can imagine. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, so let me read a section, a little blip from your book. He misses the footsteps and voices, the stir beyond the walls from, from other rooms. But aloneness is what he demanded, his studio off limits to everyone, the message written in stone back in Forest Hills when his family was more or less intact. Could you take a minute to explain the imagery? This is the world of Bert. Well, Bert is an artist. He's a consummate artist. Uh, his life revolves around his own painting, and he nurtures that, unfortunately, through, uh, you know, the pursuit of the women sexually. Uh, and he feels it's feeding his ego in some fashion, feeding his muse, if you want to put it that way, to the detriment of his whole family. He pays no attention to his daughter, not only not allowing her in the room where he's spending most of his time and, and uh, most of his uh, heart and soul and energy, uh, and also, uh, in a sense, closing his wife off as well. <clears throat> so he's closed off those things that are very, that should be close to him and dear to him and give him support and comfort. Uh, so he's uh, smitten by art. Uh, and um, <clears throat> many of us do have this kind of uh, uh, pursuits that we must follow. And nobody can fault that if that is your nature to do that. But um, I, I think it's, it's unfortunate with, uh, with Bert, uh, and it probably is because he never can think he's good enough. I believe that Bert is always pursuing a, fi- a finite achievement that he can not have, although he does get some fame in this book uh, and, and rise to, to that occasion. He still is unsure of himself. And still, in a sense, wants more courage and more power to be able to fulfill his uh, expectations of himself. I put it that way. Thanks. That's you know, it's uh, one but of the it's main. It's a hard road to host, Stephen. I think that's uh, where the conflict with him comes. The stir beyond the the, the walls and all that stuff. Uh, he wants those people there. Those people that have left him. That's the stir beyond the walls that he hears. His daughter, his wife 
And his muse, his lover, who was a model, Irene, who figures highly in the novel as well, that model under the fluorescence posing nude. So um, I think that's the stir beyond the walls. And maybe all of us feel that stir beyond the walls. I know my ex-husband used to like the fact that I was there, the fact of company in the room, whether or not you had to really connect with it. Many of us, um, of us unfortunately feel that. And uh, whether they're afraid to connect, hesitant to connect, uh, or what the uh, standoff is, I don't know. But that stir beyond the rooms is something we all want to feel more closely and sometimes can't. That's powerful because that is it, it's so much, especially as you describe it like that, that is something that you really recognize it in your words in the book where the idea that this is my world and the, the two kind of, you know, they not so much want to mix, but at the same time wants to have that other world and uh, but do what he does to whatever it's, you know, to help make him, you know, I mean, it's just... Oh. Or human. I'll finish your sentence. That'll work. That'll work, yes. <laughs> and you know, uh, you had started this conversation about the sculpture, which I'm very grateful for because uh, you could have gone right to the book, but instead you were clever enough to have uh, gone to that because you actually looked at the sculpture. And I don't know if you remember seeing three life-size figures there. There are only two now because one was struck by a tree and demolished. Oh, no. Oh, isolation. People in beds next to each other who are isolated. One rising from the bed to talk and nobody listening. Another um, opening her mouth, very tiny mouth, and trying to speak and no words would come out. Full-size figures. These are life-size figures and beds. And the third one has given up altogether and is just leaning in towards the wall and not speaking at all. So isolation is what it is. And I think I, we all have this feeling, uh, even when we're very close to people, like bedfellows side by side, we have our own lonely chambers that we stay within. And every once in a while, though, we have a conversation with someone that bursts out of that and that we feel listened to and that we feel uh, interested in as well. It's a conversation back and forth. So those are rare moments. And I think my lust for those things really shows up in both my sculpture and my writing. No question about it. That is awesome. This is um, because this is, this is kind of our, not only is it kind of our world, it really is our world. And then with, when you add social media into the mix, it's, it, the void's filled by looking at a little screen or tapping your thumbs and talking, even though somebody might be sitting right next to you, you're tapping and talking to really no one. It's just, being posted out there someplace. Stephen, that is a wonderful observation. That is so true. Uh, I hadn't, you know, branched off to that, but that's a whole topic in itself, how that uh, actually puts a club hammer, just a hammer pounding on conversation, on that intimacy that happens when you can listen as well as articulate, uh, you know, thoughts between people. This is a wonderful thing. It's a work of art, a conversation. Uh, and you're right, social media puts a cloud hammer on it. <laughs> that it does, that it does. So, um, so I got to talk about this, because one of the things that you're sharing in this story is you're, you're looking in at this, this family and what it, what's become, and uh, as well as the others around it. And, and uh, you kind of show this um, emotional fragility of artists. I mean, could you talk about what the, 
what that is. I mean, there's a sense of um, the emotions and, uh, you know, kind of wanting to, to be a part, you know, just constant uh, there. You're, you're in what they're feeling. So can you talk about that? I certainly shall because that's the one thing that I'm thinking about a lot. And that is the element of courage. Uh, do you know to make something new that has never been made before? That comes only from your vision, your experience, your brain, if you want to call it, your heart and soul. It takes courage to put it out there. First of all, you have to have isolated the time to be able to fabricate it away from other things. That means give it priority. And who are you to give this thing priority? Your little, you know, morsel of this, <laughs> of this cosmos of the universe, you little morsel. How are you going to create something like that? So you have to rise from that dust all the time, Stephen, to, with what, with what courage? And that's where uh, the basis of your question lies. Artists have got to have that courage. And you're constantly, you know, uh, demeaning yourself by saying, I don't have the courage. You have to surmount it with every pound of the chisel on the wood and with every, you know, putting together of fabrics or, uh, you know, trying to melt that wax to formulate something that's brand new. You have to fight it and you have to find the courage. So that's it. And that's why artists are so uh, unusual. That's why artists are very often like children in the sense that children have to muster that courage all the time to face newness. They're facing newness every day. Uh, All the way through school, they're facing newness and they're facing challenges and they have to rise to that courage. So uh, artists and children are very much related, but that's another uh, topic, I think. But the answer to your question is trying to fabricate that courage to be able to continue to create. And you have to, you have no choice. If you're an artist, I know the feeling you have to. It's not as if you're making a choice. You are making a choice to find the time and the discipline to go forward with it, but to, to have to do it, that is in you, that is in you, that dynamic, that need, let's put it that way, that need. Thank you. That's, and, and this is, you know, it's a powerful kind of discussion, uh, not a kind of discussion, it is a discussion. You know, it's, it, it's amazing because, you know, that once we, if you just focus on courage for just a minute, I mean, trying to create something and then get others to understand what it is that you're creating, right. I mean, you're really putting yourself out there for some sort of criticism. And so you got to be ready to be, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones type things, but your words will never hurt me. Or, you know, you got to, you got to be able to throw that out there because you're, you're putting out there every, you know, all your blood, sweat and tears into whatever that work is. Well, you know, you're right. If you're hard enough to find a courage, you're hard enough to take the criticism, right? Right. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's just an amazing sort of thing because that's, uh, you know, because it's, you know, it's like, well, you know, it, you're involved in lots of this type of stuff because not just the, the actual uh, work of uh, using different uh, mediums and such like this, but also then the, like the books, you know, the books that you write when people, <laughs> you know, you put down, if you put anything out there, you got to have the courage to go, Okay, let's see what the people think now. <laughs> yeah, and why do you do it? Stephen gets back to your original question. Why do you want to write, or why did you want to write in the first place? And I, I mentioned it's this sense of discovery. You've discovered something, and you want to share it. And that sense of discovery, which you're exploring in the first place, as an artist, you're exploring. 
uh, with your eyes, your ears, uh, and all of your sensibilities, even your taste and all that, you're always discovering things. And therefore, you want to share it because we are social beings. We came out of the womb that way. We are social beings. That is organic to us. And so we must share it. We must get the feedback. Uh, and we must have that conversation, if you want to look at it that way, which I cook, which I mentioned is a work of art in itself, if you can listen and articulate at the same time. So anyway, so that's, that's a, it all leads back uh, to um, what is needed when you are an artist and what the, uh, what you need to get from others as an artist. Gotcha. You know, and this, this, and this kind of really makes me fine tune something I want to ask you, which is, you know, part of what you're doing is an, an artist talking about the artist world And that's got to be sometimes a little interesting and how it might make you feel. But also I got to, I got to think that, uh, you know, in sharing thoughts and ideas um, to create this, um, your, your work um, reminder by the the novels called naked under lights, the uh, you know, what's it, what was it like, like creating these characters and and talking about the artist experience and world, I mean, to, to create what you've done. I think uh, any writer will probably tell you, or most writers of fiction will tell you, uh, that as you're exploring each character, something of yourself is coming out during that exploration. And then the characters, amazingly enough, begin to take over. They begin to tell you what what they want to do. (laughs) It's really funny. That's why it's such an exciting thing to be a novelist. I hate to even use that term because it sounds so profound but i have written three novels so i guess i can be called that in a way uh but that's what it is you are sharing your life with these characters that you've created what more wonderful thing can happen my god that only happens when you're drunk right to be able to have friendships <laughs> and such closeness uh, you're intimate with your novels so uh with your with your characters i mean so um bert as an artist has a lot of me in him, I'm sure. Uh, that search for um, authenticity, you know. Uh, and uh, Ruth, the wife that's trying to understand her husband and trying to make a good partnership with a lot of odds against her, that's part of me as well. And then we have Sonata, who's 18, who's trying to become a richly endowed woman, a woman with all the sensibilities and uh, the heart and the the attractiveness and everything that's necessary in this life for a woman to have in some fashion. And so that's part of me also. And then the model standing there exposed in the nude, sharing her body and her, her whole, what she has to give to other people. She must need something too, to be able to do that. So that's part of me also. So, but that's, the stuff I don't really bring to the light. I just create the character and suddenly the character has an identity. That's not me, not me at all, but yet uh, organically it probably divide derived from me in some fashion. And I think perhaps as people write and as your readers write, they will discover this too. They don't have to think about themselves. That self is going to come out in the writing in some fashion but not literally at all. The characters won't allow that. 
they want to be themselves in your novel. <laughs> it's fascinating. That's awesome. That's uh, I appreciate you talking about that because that's it's it's. Uh... You're asking. I wouldn't have talked about it if you hadn't asked. So that's <laughs> your uh, cleverness to have put it in right in in uh, articulation like that. Well, thank you. That's that. Uh, I, that's so cool. I and, and part of what you know you you make me think about is as I look at because in in looking at the different works that you do and I'll, and I mean you're. you're pro- prolific in this i mean you're in all all different places that you're um the, your creations and you know what's that like and and i kind of want you to go in a direction of being able to talk like like to someone who's like really trying to give up on the thought of uh, getting their work shown i mean because it it's got to be an interesting aspect uh of the world interesting probably not a really terrible word here um, but a sense of reality to get your work shown, to get people to look at it. You know, um, you're in um, New York, you're in the East Coast world. Um, that's got to help a little bit as opposed to being, you know, like in <laughs> some middle state someplace um, that may have its own little culture or something. But, I mean, what what's that, the the pressures or, or the the drive to try and get somebody to say, you know, we want to show your work? Well, that's a problem. That is really a problem. Unfortunately, it's not what we do well either. You know, Uh, I'm very bad at it. I'm bad at social media. uh, And it's very hard to get your work out there. I think uh, once you have published something, you can become a member of the Authors Guild. And the Authors Guild has postings every day of the week, all seven days of the week, posting people asking questions and people answering uh, them, uh, professionals and all that, and non-professionals. So it's a... uh, an interaction uh, with writer, writers, with other writers, called the Authors Guild. So I think that's a good thing to join. You get a lot of questions answered that way. Uh, but uh, it's hitting the pavements, I guess, is what it is to try to get your novel published uh, and, and uh, your nonfiction book published and so forth. And then, of course, after you get it published, you have a lot of things to do. You have to go through the whole copy editing process and you have to go um, reading your book about I guess five, six times through. That's a lot to read 400 pages through and, and you know, uh, in bits and starts and all that through this process. And then when it's finally published, you are expected as the author, you know, to do things to get it out there. So it's not like the old days where they did it all for you. So it's a hard road to hoe in answer to your question. Thanks. I, I can only imagine. I mean, it's just, uh, um, and it would you really probably have to stick stick to it because there'd probably be a lot of things that want to take you to take a detour <laughs> and say. Well, and, I mean, and the hardest part is that you're not good at it. You know, this is not your expertise at all. Right. So you don't know how to do it. Uh, so you know that's that's it. And yet your 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 expertise is certainly in the nonfiction books that you have managed to write, uh, and you know whatever you can manage in terms of fiction, uh, getting your. Uh, words and your heart and soul out there. But uh, I, every author has the same situation, unless, of course, you're a bestseller already, and you don't have to worry about that. Gotcha. <laughs> so so i got to ask you a question that's, um, you know, when, we, when you were developing this idea that becomes Naked Under the Lights, was there something that was just that original thought that, some, you know, you, you said, this is going to make it into a book, 
now I got to figure out the rest of the story. What did you have that original idea that one thing, I mean, what was that one thing that said, I got to write a book about this? There certainly was one thing. While I was at the Art Students League with my scholarship there, 19 years old, you know, going every day, uh, there was a party that uh, my teacher had uh, planned for him by his family. And uh, it was a surprise party for a milestone birthday. And in that party were major artists, you know, because they were all related to the Art Students League, as I told you, these 20th century artists that were well known. And everybody came to the surprise party except the person of honor. <laughs> the man of honor didn't show up. And it was really fascinating because I was one of those little students that was there and in the midst of all these great artists and all that, I'm sitting there because I was one of the students and he didn't show up. It was fascinating. So that's how I built this story around. I built the story around that. That's, that's awesome. And it's neat that it kind of just kind of stayed there to be something that, uh, you know, was impactful enough to remember to say, ah, this is, I'm going to keep this here for a little bit. This is going to, one day this is going to be handy. So, Wow, this is uh, what a cool life experience you've had, and uh, and all the stuff you got going on. You got the oh, at the Jack Hammer Show, yeah. These are going to be Ladies of Steel. Uh, they're supposed to go out in the middle of December and stay there till um, mid August, uh, I believe. They have to be approved by the Parks Department, but so far the Jack Hammer Show Plaza wants them, which is nice. Uh, and these are uh, light over life size steel ladies. I think metaphorically, it has a lot of meaning too. These are sturdy ladies, yeah, you know, cool. hard to destroy, uh, although uh, they can be decorated on. I've discovered people like to tag them or put their initials on, and then it causes me a lot of trouble to have to, you know, get all those initials off of the, uh, with paint and so forth. But uh, nevertheless, um, I'm hoping that we'll go. I, one of those ladies just came back um, as part of the Sculpture Guild. We had just five of us were showing in the Lower East Side. So she just came back from Hester Street and Allen Street, uh, Hester and Allen, and she just came back from there. And they have been exhibited other places like the Mount in uh, Massachusetts and so forth. So, um, I, yeah, I, I continue to exhibit. In fact, Jersey City, just yesterday I brought some pieces back from the Jersey City Art Fair show, 14C it was called, and that just ended uh, on Sunday night. Uh, so I'm always bringing my work out there and, you know, and showing it in various places. That's so cool. So, uh, I want to make sure that I gave you a chance to, to, to mention that again, uh, cause this has been awesome talking with you about, about your novel naked under the lights and about, uh, the sculpt, the sculpting and working with metal and all the cool things you got going on as well as your other writings. Uh, you know, Judith, before we close, if someone wanted to learn more, where would you send them? Do you have a website or a, a place specifically where they could, uh, where I should Make sure well, I send them. All, all my books, uh, whether they're published uh, elsewhere or not, are available on uh, www.iapbooks. That stands for Imagination Arts Publications. Imagination Arts Publications. Uh, IAP Books. Uh, but uh, my two new nonfiction books are with Rutledge of Taylor and Francis, R O U T L E D G E. And uh, the novel that we've been talking about is published by Black Rose Writing. Uh, I imagine you could find the website there, Black Rose Writing. 
Uh, and uh, I'm working on a new novel right now uh, by, uh, it's a mystery. Uh, and it takes uh, the part of an art therapist who solves the murder with a drawing as if a drawing can be that impressive. But the drawing is impressive enough to help solve the drawing. Uh, so that's the new novel that I'm working on now. Very cool. Well, I will put all that information uh, where they can find your works and such in the show notes so they can easily uh, pull that up, uh, whether at a desktop, laptop, or on the mobile phone. So it should be pretty cool. Uh, you know, uh, um, before uh, we go, I got two last questions, and it's just questions I like to ask my guests. And the first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow, that's a whopper of a question. I don't know. I really do know. do not know what keeps me going. But boy, I'm out of my comfort zone every single day, uh, and I I think that's that's kind of fun to do. Uh, one of the nonfiction books that I just published this year uh, is called Art and Social Interaction, and it's all about the program I started at Ramapo College, where uh, I send students in with art activities to jails, mental hospitals. Uh, the frail elderly in nursing homes and drug abuse centers and, and domestic abuse centers, and they give freedom of expression to these institutionalized individuals. Uh, at the same time, they're learning about the major issues of our time, crime, old age, mental illness, and drug abuse and child abuse, and all of it out of your comfort zone. So I think I'm pretty used to being out of my comfort zone, and I want to inspire other people as well to get out there because once you're out of that comfort zone, your eyes are open to new things, new challenges. And I guess that's what keeps me going. If that's an answer to your question, I think that's why I sort of give these things priority. That's awesome. That is a great answer to the question. Thank you. Uh, last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? <sighs> Gee, uh, that's a hard one. I do have a teacher, an art teacher, uh, when I was a child who taught me how to scrub my back by turning the washcloth one end on the other, you know, and making a triangle out of it. And I always think about her. And she must have taught me other things, too, because to teach me that practical thing when I'm in an art class, she had to be kind of a dynamic individual. So she stood in my mind a little bit. And, uh, I don't know if I had... Uh, another teacher that really inspired me a lot. Uh, I can't say that off the cuff. I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. I try to inspire students in my own classes uh, by never being boring. At one point, I've even done the the tap dance right in front of my kids and anything not to uh, lose their attention. And I did uh, manage to uh, spark it. I once walked out of the room and then walk back in, you know, when I wasn't getting their attention. So there are ways to do that, but I try not to be boring. That's the most important thing. And all of us try to engage with other people, try to tap into what they are interested in, and then we can, you know, build from there. Uh, but uh, so I try to be a good teacher, and I probably did have good teachers along the way at one point or another, uh, but uh, can't think of them right now. Cool. Well, well, thanks so much for sharing. And, and Judith, it was awesome talking with you today. Thanks for sharing the world of artists and your novel, Naked Under the Lights. And I wish you the best in all you do. I wish you the best in all the, the different projects you got going on. And, uh, and uh, look forward to the fourth one. You got to, when that novel's ready, if you want to go again, I'd love to have you back on the show. So it'd be cool. Thank you very much. I'd love that. And thank you for having me again.
Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.